lot of time on it, months and months and months, and we've gone over all kinds of different religions. But what I, what I want to do for the next few weeks is look at some of the Protestant mainline denominations, um, see how they differ from us as Baptists. Um, and, I, and I'll say this as a caveat. I, I think, uh, well, number one, they're, they're, they're Protestants, okay? Baptists are not Protestants. Protestant comes from the Protestant Reformation, right? And what does Protestant come from? Protest, right? And so a lot of these Protestant denominations got their start because they were protesting the Catholic Church. Most of them did not want to leave the Catholic Church. They just wanted to change the Catholic Church. And Baptists can trace their history back, and we were never part of the Catholic Church at all. So we were not, there was nothing for us to protest, so to speak. But a lot of these Protestant denominations that we know of today, and, and when I'm talking about the Protestant mainline, I'm talking about Methodists, Lutheran, Presbyterian, some of these others that, that would be considered right around in that same general area. Um, so they're close. They're close. Um, I think that um, many of them started um, preaching the gospel. And as we'll talk about, we're going to talk about the Methodists tonight and next week, but I think the Methodists had it right when they first started. And uh, just over the course of the years since they've started in their early, late, late 17, early 1800s, I think they've gotten off. And now if somebody believes everything that the Methodist church is teaching, I don't, I don't know if they're saved. I, I don't know if you can say that they are. Um, now, obviously, there, I think there's people in every denomination that are saved that are just doctrinally off that are they're missing a few things and maybe that's where they they grew up there or uh that's where they went after they got saved and they you know they started uh learning those doctrines and things like that but i think i think it would become especially especially in today's methodist church i think it would be pretty obvious to somebody who really is saved that there's a lot of things that are wrong um and and a lot of major doctrines that are wrong um, of course, they believe in Jesus. They believe in the birth, the death, the resurrection. They believe in all of those things. They believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins and all of those things. Um, we're going to look at, and we're just going to look at them very, very briefly this week, but we're going to look at in a lot more detail next week um, the differences. What, what is different between us and the Methodists? And, and we're going to look at it from the, from the Bible and from a biblical perspective, and hopefully that will help you to... Uh, to really understand that. Now, I'll say this as a caveat. I, I don't claim to be an expert on any of these denominations. I've never been a Methodist. I've never been a Lutheran. I've never been a Presbyterian. So I don't know firsthand um, about these denominations. I only know what I've read. And there's so much information out there. Um, it's, it's very hard to sift through everything. Uh, a lot of the information that's out there is contradictory. Uh, because the, the Methodists themselves are saying one thing, and then a, then a lot of other people are saying things about the Methodists uh, that is something completely different. And of course, you know, they're going to try to paint themselves in the best light possible, and, and of course there's been plenty of people who have left these denominations who are saying, hey, this is not right, and this is what's not right about it. I, I got saved, and I came out of the Methodist church, that, that kind of stuff. And so um, with that said, I, I want to begin with the Methodist Church tonight, and so as we get into it, what I want to look at tonight is the history of the Methodist Church. Um, a lot of the names you'll probably recognize, and um, uh, I think it'll be helpful for us to understand where they came from and then kind of look at, and, and honestly, there's, there's been a huge um, divide in the Methodist Church just recently. Uh, within the last six months, the Methodist Church has split basically in half because the Methodist Church has moved into being very, very open to 
not just, you know, LGBTQ stuff, but now they have the ministers who are, who are part of that, that group. Uh, you know, so they have gay preachers and, and lesbian preachers and, and uh, a lot of other things that go right along with that. And there's one side of it. And, and now there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of denominations of Methodists. So when, when I'm talking about uh, this split that's taking place, I'm talking about the United Methodist Church. That is by far the largest denomination within the Methodist Church. But there are, there are probably uh, mainline Methodist denominations, probably 10 or 15. Uh, most of them are very small compared to the United Methodist Church, and that, so that's who I'm talking about. Had this had this massive split very very recently, um, but we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. So let's get into it. The, the Methodist denomination actually arose out of the Church of England in the 18th century. Anybody t- can tell me what the Church of England? What is the what is the denomination of the Church of England? Not Catholic, Anglican. Anglican, which is diet Catholic, if you will. Uh, it's very, very close to Catholic, but uh, they're, they're definitely a different denomination. And that goes back even farther because of different political divisions and things like that that made the Anglicans and the, um, um, what's the other one I'm trying to think of that was a split off of the Catholic Church, the Episcopal uh, Church, that was a split off. And then you have the Eastern Orthodox and you have the, uh, you know, you have lots of different denominations that have split off of the Catholic Church that are very similar to the Catholic Church. But the Church of England was the Anglican Church. And of course, that's what they brought over with them. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons that we had the War for Independence, right? They wanted to be able to worship God the way that they wanted to worship God. And they were told that they couldn't do anything but worship in the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Everything else that was not sanctioned by the church was considered to be illegal and, and they, wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't recognize, which is, you know, uh, I mean, we have a very, very rich Baptist history right here in this area. Uh, you go down to the Chesterfield Jail and you can still see the place where the Baptist pastors were jailed for not taking a license from the Church of England to preach. Uh, and so there's a lot of that, but that's, you know, the Church of England was, was uh, uh, nothing uh, for the freedom of religion and everything else, which is one of the things that the War for Independence was fought over. But um, the Methodist denomination really originated with the evangelistic and revival ministry of two brothers, John and Charles Wesley. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791, and Charles Wesley lived from 1707 to 1788. So very, very close in age. Uh, there's the picture of both of those guys. I'm, aren't you glad people don't really look like that today, huh? Could you imagine if I got up there with a powdered wig and all that stuff? But they were members of what was, um, uh, it, they were labeled the Oxford Methodists, um, which is a group of Oxford University students that were methodical in their habits of prayer and Bible reading, and, and, and they, they, they just sought to live simple, holy lives. And so it was really a derogatory term, calling these guys Methodists. You're just going by these methods but they end up embracing it, and um, of course, John John Wesley, who was the leader of the club, uh, you know, he took that attempted mockery and actually embraced it and started calling themselves the Methodists. And so, uh, but the Wesleys were were very zealous in evangelism and preached to the prisoners, to the poor, to uh, the underprivileged in the British society, which, by the way, is where they were at. They were in Britain, but in in 1735. At the invitation of, a, of another guy that you may recognize uh, his name, but he was actually the founder of the Georgia colony. By the way, do you remember why Georgia was started How, or, or, or what Georgia started as? Anybody remember? 
Georgia was actually started as a prisoner colony. They, they would send these guys down to Georgia and let them go make their living in a field or whatever else. And so it was kind of like the entire state was a prison. And, uh, but they, they had their freedom as long as they stayed within that state. And that's, that's how it started. And, of course, more people started moving there and everything else. But uh, James Oglethorpe, he was actually a general, um, but he was the founder of the Georgia colony. He invited John and Charles Wesley uh, to come down there to Georgia and to do what they could do ministerial-wise. And so they left England, came to America to go to Georgia and uh, to be ministers to the colonists and, and missionaries to the Native Americans that lived there and everything else. Well, they were unsuccessful in their work. They didn't really convert a lot of people. Um, they just they didn't see a lot of movement. So, so both of them ended up going back to England. Um, and, and they really were very conscious of their lack of Christian faith. They were very pious. They wanted to do the right thing. They started this group at Oxford. They, they came over to do mission work and everything else, but they, something to them was missing. And so while at Oxford and then beyond that, they were, they were accustomed to receiving communion every week. They, they were very much part of the Anglican Church. Uh, so they, they received communion every week. They fasted. They prayed. They did all kinds of things that, you know, um, that would earn them points, so to speak, with the church. They, they avoided all kinds of all forms of amusement that would, um, you know, um, keep them from being everything that they could be for the cause of, of the church, right? They visited the poor. They, uh, they helped the prisoners and things like that, but they felt like they were going through the motions and like something was missing. And so uh, they looked for help to Peter Bowler, B-O-E-H-L-E-R. He was actually a Moravian pastor. Uh, which they're part of the Brethren churches and, um, and honestly can go way back. They go back, they go back well before the, the actual Protestant Reformation, the Moravians. And um, anyway, there was a service at Aldersgate in England on May 24th, 1738. John Wesley actually heard um, this Moravian pastor reading Luther's exposition of Romans chapter 1. Uh, or not just Romans chapter 1, but the book of Romans, about justification by faith. And it, it struck him. It was kind of the first time that it really hit him that, that there's not, it's not all about works. It's not all about what we can do. It's not all about just doing our best to live cleanly. It's, it's about justification by faith. And so he experienced what's become known as his conversion at that point. And he said his, his heart felt strangely warmed. He wrote this. He said, I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That's a pretty good testimony. I don't know what else you would expect to hear from somebody that has accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, right? Charles Wesley had a similar experience a few days before this Moravian meeting that they went to, but both of them had a testimony of accepting Jesus Christ by faith alone uh, for salvation. Now, Daniel Burnett, in, in 2006, he wrote a book called the Shadow, uh, In the Shadow of Eldersgate, which is um, uh, kind of an introduction to the Wesleyan tradition and so on, but he wrote this. The significance of John Wesley's Eldersgate experience is monumental. Without it, the names of Wesley and Methodism would likely be nothing more than obscure footnotes in the pages of church history. But he, John Wesley and his brother, with another fellow Oxford graduate, George Whitfield, who is a name that you probably recognize as well, um, became central to a great spiritual revival that, 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 that really followed in England and America. 
And so, after their salvation experience, there's George Whitfield, and we're going to talk about him in just a little bit. By the way, you notice that he looks cross-eyed. That, he, that was a physical defect, if you will, that he had. He was cross-eyed, and people pointed that out in a lot of different places. Um, but, as we'll see, that didn't keep him back from being anything uh, for God. He, he, was, he was greatly used by God, and he was actually very influential in the early American colonies. We'll talk about that in a little bit as well. But after their salvation experiences, the Wesley brothers immediately started to preach salvation by faith, you know, uh, salvation through grace by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And, of course, that pretty much immediately set them at odds against the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Um, but they started to preach to individuals, they started to preach to groups, they started preaching in houses, they started preaching on the open streets, they started preaching in fields, um, and, and, in, and in some of the very few churches that actually had not closed their doors to evangelical preachers. Most churches did not allow someone to preach in their church unless they were part of the Anglican church. And so you have to remember that at that time the Church of England was the church, and so they were not open for people getting up there and preaching salvation by grace through faith, which is really interesting because you think of America, you know, this is, this is the, the foundation of, of godly principles and the foundation of salvation and everything else. It really wasn't that, not, at least not until after the American War for Independence uh, and, you know, a lot of these influences like Whitfield and some of these guys really came around. But what had happened was uh, the Church of England was accepting anybody and everybody to be part of the membership. And so if you wanted to be anybody in the early American colonies, you had to be a part of the Church of England. And, of course, they're preaching everything that is basically works, salvation. And so you had a, you had a whole lot of people who were not saved that were all members of these churches. You know, and, and the funny thing is, we think about our founding fathers as being so religious. Most of them, they, they, had, a, they had a belief in the Bible, and they had a... Uh, they had morals, and they had um, a trust in God and, and those kind of things. But most of them, I don't know if I could say most of them, but a lot of them were not saved. Uh, Benjamin Franklin never claimed to, to be saved. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He didn't claim to be saved. They didn't claim salvation. And so, you know, I, I think we'll be surprised when you start going through a lot of these different founding fathers of actually which ones are, are truly saved and which ones are not. And I think there's probably more of them that are not than were. Now, the ones that were had a huge influence on American society and everything else, thankfully. Um, but um, I, let me point this out here too, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in a little bit. But um, there was somewhat of a dif- disagreement between John Wesley and George Whitfield. Um, they worked cl- very closely together over the years, and they're both known as really the founders of the Methodist Church. But George Whitfield embraced Calvinistic theology. He embraced John Calvin, and um, Wesley rejected it. Whitfield was a Calvinist, and um, John Wesley was an Arminian. Now, a lot of people look at those two things as the opposite. You're either a Calvinist or an Arminian, um, because Arminian uh, preached and taught basically free will. But he taught a lot more than that as well, and, and uh, basically taught that you could lose your salvation or, or you could choose to give up your salvation and, and different things like that. So we'll leave it at that. But Wesley argued really against Calvin doc, Cal, Calvinistic doctrine that Christians could enjoy what's known as a second blessing, and that is entire sanctification or Christian perfection, which is something that we're going to talk about next week. We'll never be perfect until we get to heaven. We ought to be trying to. But, but John Wesley 
preached and taught that you could become perfect in this life. Uh, loving God, love your neighbors, meekness, lowliness of heart, abstaining from all appearance of evil and those kind of things, and you could actually be sinless in this life. And um, those differences really put a strain on the alliance, if you will, between Whitfield and Wesley. Wesley actually became pretty hostile toward George Whitfield, and um, they, before that, had had a very close relationship. They were part of this group at Oxford. Um, it said, and, and obviously I, we weren't there, but it said that George Whitfield co consistently begged John Wesley to uh, not let the theological differences sever their friendship. And in time, their friendship actually was restored. But a lot of uh, a lot of Whitfield's followers felt that that was a doctrinal compromise. And I will say that if if you were going to put a gun to my head and make me make a choice between John Wesley and George Whitfield, and and say which one was closer to the truth of the Word of God, I would say that George Whitfield was. Now, I don't agree with his Calvinistic theology and stuff like that, but most of what George Whitfield preached and taught is very closely lined up with what, what the Baptists believe and teach and everything else. But another large difference, and this is kind of just a footnote, but I thought this was pretty interesting as I was studying this out. Another large difference between Whitfield and Wesley was the issue of slavery. You have to remember when this was, right? So the middle of the 1700s, slavery was very big in the United States. And, um, and would be for another hundred years. But George Whitfield actually, um, John Wesley opposed slavery, and George Whitfield felt that even though slaves should be treated kindly, slavery was necessary to fund things like the orphanage that he had in Georgia. He had a huge orphanage. And he said, without slavery, I cannot fund this orphanage. We need slavery. And it's pretty interesting, too, that he was actually responsible for the reintroduction of slavery into Georgia. George Whitfield was. And we, we find a really weird dichotomy here because slavery had been outlawed in that, that colony of Georgia in 1735. Now, this was not, you think about it, it's not that long before they got there and started doing their work, 1735. But in 1747, George Whitfield started to really push amongst the politicians the fact that, hey, my orphanage is really strong. I'm trying to help these kids who have no parents, the orphanage is really struggling because we are not allowed to have slavery in Georgia. I need these slaves to be working the fields so that we can fund the orphanage and all of these other charity things that we're trying to do. And so he argued, quote, the constitution of that colony is very bad and it is impossible for the inhabitants to subsist while blacks are banned. So he argued that the colony would never be prosperous until slavery was allowed to come into Georgia. And eventually, he won out, and they made slavery legal in Georgia. Um, it's pretty interesting, though. He said this, Had Negroes been allowed to live in Georgia, I should now have had a sufficiency to support a great many orphans without expending above half the sum that has been laid out. So his, his push for the legalization of slavery in Georgia was, Quote, cannot be explained solely on the basics of economics. It was also his hope for their adoption and for their eternal salvation. So he, he wanted slaves to be allowed to be in Georgia because he needed the slave labor, but he also wanted them to be allowed to be accepted into Georgia so that he could win them to Christ. 
which is just, it's a weird dichotomy, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and I think now looking at it and knowing what slavery is and knowing where we stand on the issue of slavery and all that kind of stuff, it's, it's very different. But in 1751, slavery was allowed in Georgia. And so Whitfield saw, quote, the legislation of black residency as part personal victory and part divine will. Um, and so he argued a scriptural justification for slavery in Georgia, which is, uh, again, it's it just... Uh, to us, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what he did with that was then, I mean, and this is, this is unheard of in the 1750s, but he actually started to allow black children into his orphanage. And he took care of them the same way that he took care of the white children, didn't, didn't separate or segregate them or anything else. And he used his preaching to raise money to house these black children that were now legal in Georgia. In a book um, about George Whitfield that was published in 2010, it was said that, that, quote, he became perhaps the most energetic and conspicuous evangelical defender and practitioner of the rights of black people. So even at the same time that he's promoting slavery, he's promoting their rights and, and the fact that they should have, you know, um, uh, residency in Georgia and have rights in Georgia at the same time that he owned about 50 slaves. So it just, it's just this weird, weird dichotomy. But by propagating this theological defense for black re residency, Whitfield actually helped the slaveholders to prosper. So he's, he's saying that they should be helped and that they should be, you know, we need to bring them in so that we can get them saved, but then slaveholders should also be able to have slaves too. It was, it's just weird. But in 1740, during his second visit to America, he published, quote, an open letter to the planters of South Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland, chastising them for their cruelty to their slaves. He wrote this. I think God has a quarrel with you for your abuse of and cruelty to the poor Negroes. Your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves, who are frequently styled dogs or beasts, have not an equal privilege. But he actually stopped short of, of giving a moral judgment on slavery itself as an institution. I just think it's this weird dichotomy where he's he is, this, he is the black man's friend and the defender of their rights at the same time that he owned slaves. And so actually when George Whitfield died, I think he left about 4,000 acres and 50 slaves to the people who, uh, who ended up getting his property. But some people have claimed that the Bethesda organ, orphanage set an example of the way that black people should be treated. Maybe you've heard of Phyllis Wheatley. Um, she actually lived from 1753 to 1784. She was a slave. And I believe she's on, um, uh, it's not uh, coinage, I, I, maybe stamps or something. But she's, she's fairly well known because she was actually a poet. And she wrote a lot of really good poetry uh, in the short life that she had as a slave. But she wrote a poem called On the Death of Reverend George Whitfield uh, in 1770. And the first line calls Whitfield a happy saint. So it's, you know, obviously they were very much in favor of what he was doing for them. But then he owned slaves at the same time, and John Wesley very much opposed George Whitfield's ownership of these slaves. So it's, it's just a weird thing, and, and you know, they, they opposed each other on a lot of different fronts, but this was a really big one. George, uh, John Wesley was very much in favor of, of uh, anti-slavery and freeing the slaves and everything else, and George Whitfield, who, who is known for being one of, the, one of the most prominent preachers of that entire uh, century, if not beyond that, here he opposed anti-slavery and had slaves himself. But George Whitfield, he returned from his own mission there in Georgia, joined the Wesleys, 
um, in what was really rapidly becoming a national crusade to try to win people to Jesus Christ. And I think it was a great uh, um, uh, goal that they had. And even though they had a strained relationship, they were able to set those things aside for the sake of the gospel. And they started preaching together. Um, um, they became well-known, and really Whitfield especially, became well-known for his, his unorthodox itinerant ministry. Almost every pastor, every preacher, I should say, back in that day, had a church that they were a pastor of. And if they went out and preached somewhere else or whatever, then, then that was fine, but they always went back to their church. It was, it was kind of unheard of to be an itinerant preacher, which an itinerant preacher is. You just go from one place to the next preaching. And um, he, was, he, he loved open-air preaching the most, and he was dedicated to that. He reached crowds of thousands and thousands of people. And I think a key step in the development of John Wesley's ministry was, like Whitfield, he actually started preaching in these open fields. He started preaching in the streets. He started preaching wherever he could get a crowd together who would listen to him because, uh, like I said, the Anglican churches were not letting him come in and preach in their pulpits, and so they had to do that if they were going to get the message out. Part of that was due to the fact that the Church of England barred the Wesleys themselves from preaching in their churches, but uh, they, they started preaching in barns, streets, fields, wherever they could do that. But... In 1740, Whitfield traveled to North America, and he started preaching a series of revivals that actually became known as the Great Awakening. I'm sure you've heard of the Great Awakening. That was under George Whitfield, and really the Wesleys had a lot to do with that as well, but in particular John Wesley. But his methods were very controversial. He, he engaged a lot of the pastors in uh, debates. He disputed with these other clergymen. He didn't agree with them because, again, they were all preaching and teaching the, the, the doctrine of the Anglican church, and he was so opposed to that that he was not afraid to stand up and really get in their face and, and have these arguments with them and say, you're wrong on this. It's, it's salvation by grace through faith. And, of course, he was preaching it at the same time. Um, do you know that George Whitfield actually became very close friends with Benjamin Franklin? And Benjamin Franklin never claimed to be a Christian, but he was actually, he, he admired George Whitfield's ability to reach a crowd. And, they, and, and I've, obviously we've never heard George Whitfield preach uh, because there was no recordings and things like that. But they say that George Whitfield had a really, uh, he was very talented at being able to draw people in, in a, in a way where when you have 10,000 people and you don't have microphones, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, right? And so one time, Benjamin Franklin actually conducted a, an experiment while he was listening to George Whitfield preach. He walked as far away as he could until he could no longer hear George Whitfield's voice distinctly, or at least being able to hear what he said. And he had walked about 500 feet. Think about that. That's a long, long way away from where he's actually preaching, right? A football field is, a, is 300 feet. So you're talking almost a football field and a half away. He could distinctly hear what George Whitfield was saying while he was preaching. And so he did some calculations, and he figured that, that George Whitfield would effectively be able to preach to 30,000 people at one time, and they would be able to distinctly hear what he was saying. 30,000 people. Now, I don't know if, he's, if he ever had a crowd that size, but he routinely had crowds of over 10, 15,000 people that would gather to listen to him. And when you have guys like Benjamin Franklin that are drawn in, who don't claim to be Christians, they're just drawn in by what he's saying, then obviously he's, he's gathering these crowds because there wasn't TV, there wasn't internet, there wasn't you know, all the entertainment that we have nowadays. And so what else do you do? You go listen to George Whitfield preach, right? And thousands and thousands of these people started to get saved based on what he was saying and, and the things that he was preaching. And so uh, many of these Methodist converts were those that were disconnected from the Church of England. 
either the Church of England had pushed them out or they just didn't, they didn't believe it or they didn't feel anything the same way that Wesley's didn't feel anything. But John Wesley actually stayed a pastor in the established church. He was an Anglican pastor. And he felt that these Methodists should go to their local churches, their local parish church, attend the Anglican services, and then come and listen to him preach uh, in between because they didn't have any authority, quote-unquote, to baptize. They didn't have any authority to give communion. They were, just, they were just Methodist preachers who were, or they were just Anglicans who happened to be preaching a little bit of a different message. At least that's the way he saw it. And so these Methodist preachers focused particularly on evangelizing people that had been neglected by the uh, established Church of England. But Wesley and his, his assistant preachers started organizing the new converts into Methodist societies. And the first one was actually organized in 1766. So they, you know, this so this is after his ministry has been going on for a while. But they're starting to gather so many converts to this idea of salvation by grace through faith away from the Anglican Church that they had to do something. And so they started to organize these people into societies, and these societies were divided into groups called classes. And they had intimate meetings where these individuals were encouraged to confess their sins to one another. Um, and, and not in a way of, I need you to forgive my sins, but hey, I want to be right. I want to be out in the open. Here's what I did. This is wrong. You know, whatever. They also had, they, they also had what they called love feasts, which is kind of weird, but they, uh, it, was, it was basically just sharing testimonies, um, and it was, it was really a, a very big part of this early Methodism. But the, the growing in numbers and then, of course, the hostility toward these groups, the Methodist groups, really impressed upon these, uh, these revival converts, just a, 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 a deep sense of their corporate identity. We are not part of the Church of England anymore. We are Methodist. And so that it started to really gain steam, that, that denomination started to really gain steam. And in 1784, the Methodist Church in America was actually set up as the Methodist Episcopal Church. So 1784 was when they actually became this denomination. They rallied around basically three teachings that Methodists saw as foundation of the Christian faith. And I see nothing wrong with these. Number one, people are all by nature dead in sin. Number two, they're justified by faith alone. And number three, faith produces inward and outward holiness. Now, to them, outward holiness meant a little bit more than what I think it means in the Bible. They, they basically felt that if you, didn't, if you didn't portray this outward holiness, then you were not saved. Um, if you didn't continue in this outward holiness, then you could lose your salvation and so on. We'll talk about some of those things next week, but I think, that's, I, I, I think those principles are exactly what salvation by faith in Jesus Christ is, right? But though, the Wesleys intended to try to keep their movement within the Anglican Church, but that became impossible as time passed, and the numbers of converts increased. And so in 1739, John Wesley, now, now we're, we're stepping back because, you know, 1786, 1766 even, in 1739, John Wesley drew up a set of general rules called the Articles of Religion, which a lot of Methodists actually still hold to today. Um, and we'll talk about those a little bit more next week. But John Wesley was very good at organizational skills, and so he kind of became the de facto leader of the church. And that's, that's, that's how he ended up um, really as the leader. But a lot of clergy in the established church were afraid that these new doctrines that were being promoted by the Methodists, like the necessity of new birth for salvation, um, justification by faith, all of these other things, um, would, would produce ill effects on weak minds. 
And so obviously that scared them. A lot of people are going to be moving away from the Church of England. We can't have that happening. And so um, in one of, they started, they didn't get persecuted necessarily in a physical way, although there was, there was a, uh, some physical attacks against them. Wesley was actually almost murdered by a mob of, of uh, these Anglicans in 1743. But he had a lot of things written about him and a lot of things said about him. And, and um, one guy in particular by the name of William Hogarth attacked the Methodists as, quote, enthusiasts full of credulity, superstition, and fanaticism. And so that's, that's I mean, honestly, there's probably not many things that you could say um, that would be a better testimony in favor of somebody than something like that. And so initially, these Methodists were trying to reform the Church of England from the inside, but, but the movement gradually just, they couldn't get to the point where they saw eye to eye in anything anymore, and so they made that split. But here's where George Whitfield went even farther, because um, George Whitfield preferred extemporaneous prayer, which is exactly what prayer is, right? They had uh, the Methodist Church, because it came out of the Anglican Church, had what was known as the Book of Common Prayer, where you basically read your prayers, um, you quoted the prayers. Uh, really, prayer is just, is just pouring your heart out to God. Prayer is going to God in an extemporaneous way, right? Praying for the things that need to be prayed for now. Praying for the things that God lays on your heart to pray for. And I believe those things are things that are laid out in the Word of God as principles for prayer. And so he, he got rid of that, that book of common prayer. And uh, that really set him at odds with the Anglican clergy as well. And so as these Methodist societies multiplied, elements of this ecclesiastical system were one after another adopted. And the breach between John Wesley, George Whitfield together, and the Church of England just excuse me, gradually widened. And so in 1784, you got to think of what's going on during that time, right? 1776 was the Declaration of Independence, right? The war broke out not long after that. And so by 1789, 1790, 17, I mean, there was still a lot of things that were um, a huge um, part of the war for independence. Now, uh, a, lot of, a lot of men had been killed in that war, a lot of farms had been destroyed. A lot of people lost everything. And so because of that, by 1784, uh, there was a shortage of priests in the American colonies because of this, this war for independence. And so um, they didn't have priests who could ordain, uh, who could, who could, um, ordain priests who could do the sacraments and everything else, which remember, John Wesley was still trying to do it the Anglican way. He still wanted to be a part of the Anglican church and just change some of these things from the inside. But because of the shortage of priests, because of this gap that had widened between the Methodists and the Anglicans, John Wesley and others started um, ordaining people into the ministry. And of course, and that was, that was so illegal. That was something, you don't have a right to do that. You are not part of the Anglican church. You, you don't have a right as a Methodist. You don't have a, uh, a license to even be preaching, let alone to be ordaining other preachers. And so... Um, it's, it's just uh, it, it, the, the gap just got wider and wider and wider. A couple things as we close here that I'll, that I'll just bring out. But um, regarding the position of Methodism, or, you know, Methodism is what it's called, the Methodist Church, but Methodism is the, is the denomination. Within Christendom, John Wesley said this, um, what God has achieved in the development of, Method, of Methodism is no mere human endeavor, but the work of God as such. It will be preserved by God so long as history remains, which is 
pretty interesting, and it's so far it has. But he called he called the Methodist faith the grand depositum. He specifically taught that the propagation of the doctrine of entire sanctification was the reason that God raised up the Methodists in the world in the first place. Um, which entire sanctification is basically you can get to the point where you are sinless. Um, but in light of that, Methodists traditionally promote the motto. Their motto is holiness unto the Lord. And to them, holiness is kind of on, a, on another level. And we'll talk about that again, as I mentioned uh, next week. But Methodism spread throughout the British Empire. It, it crossed over the sea, became, uh, it spread throughout America as well. Um, and really, the first great awakening in America was the birth of Methodism. It was the birth of the Methodist Church. But um, John, uh, I mean, uh, George Whitfield died in 1770, and really American Methodism entered more of a Wesleyan, Arminian phase of development. I think if, if uh, George Whitfield had, had been a, alive a little bit longer, I think if George Whitfield had had a little bit more influence, then it would have gone in a different direction, and maybe we'd see the Methodist Church in a different direction than it is today. I don't know. Um, obviously, many of these denominations, including Baptists, that started as one thing are, are quickly moving away from that and turning into to something else. But um, as Methodists uh, grew in popularity across England and across the United States, they, they really got involved in a lot of social issues as well. And um, the, they established hospitals, they established orphanages. Uh, they were on the forefront of these social reforms where they were really promoting anti-slavery. Um, really promoting the, um, the establishment of workers' rights and everything else. And so uh, that really just kind of came along as, as part of that whole thing. But another thing that you'll recognize probably that was very much a part of the Methodist Church at the beginning was circuit-riding preachers. And uh, a lot of the very influential early preachers in America were circuit riders. They would just ride in a circuit and stop in all of those little towns and all of those little churches that had, been, that had grown up on the frontier. And so Methodism really was the religion of the West because those were the preachers who were getting around to these little towns where there was 50, 60 people and preaching to them. And that's, that's all they got was that Methodist doctrine. And so, um, but the, the camp meeting as well, um, where there was just this enthusiastic preaching and singing. That, was, that also played a very prominent role in the Methodist churches in the early 1800s and, and really into the mid to late 1800s as well. And I think probably around the late 1800s, early 1900s is when a lot of the critical text, where they started changing the Bible and started changing um, uh, you know, religion from being a relationship with Christ to be, being more of just a religion, just something that you do. I think that's when the Methodist church started to shift and change and become less of what John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield had established it to be and became more of what it is today, which is just another one of those established denominational religions that people are in because that's what they've always been and they don't know anything about it other than just this is what you do when you go to church, right? And um, I think it's strayed from his roots. But I do think there was a, a few problems in the roots, too. And uh, I believe God greatly used the Wesleys and George Whitfield to bring about a genuine revival in America. I don't think they were preaching anything other than salvation by grace through faith. And where they got off was in some of these other doctrines that may not be as, as pivotal to salvation, but... They're very important, and we'll talk about those next week. But let me, let me close with this, because this is just, this is amazing to me. John Wesley was the preacher. Charles Wesley was the hymn writer. 
But he, he did preach as well. But John Wesley was the one that became known as the preacher. Charles Wesley, if you look in, if you look in our hymn book, we've got a lot of hymns in our book by Charles Wesley. Um, but it said that John Wesley rode over 250,000 miles on a horse in his, in his circuit riding. And that he preached over 42,000 sermons in his lifetime. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's unbelievable if you think about 42,000 sermons. Um, that means that he preached on average about 500 times a year. I mean, if you think about the fact that there's 52 Sundays in a year, he's not preaching five times on a Sunday, but there's 365 days in a year. That means that at, at the very least, he's preaching at least once a day, if not more than that, 500 times a year. That's just phenomenal. There's no wonder that that message got out. But they were very prolific writers as well. John, Res John Wesley wrote over 50 books. Charles Wesley wrote over 7,000 hymns. 7,000 hymns. I mean, think about how thick that book would be, right? We have 600 and something in our book, and it's, you know, here. I mean, if you think of, you know, 12 times that, I mean, you're talking a book like this of, of all the hymns that he wrote. That's, that's, that's a lot. And then for John Wesley and himself to write 50 books. But then Whitfield too. Um, he, actually, he was actually pretty well known even in his lifetime. But it's said that he preached at least 18,000 times and that there was probably around 10 million people that heard him preach in the course of his lifetime. That's amazing if you think about it. But, you know, obviously he preached in Great Britain and in the American colonies. But uh, that's the history. That's where it started. And I think if it had stayed the way it started, it would be fine. It didn't quite stay the way it started. And a lot of things changed over time. And some of the doctrines that they... Uh, that they espoused at the beginning uh, took a turn to the left and have just continued turning that direction. And now the Methodist church is, is just a shell of what it used to be. I mean, the fact that they are allowing these things and not just allowing, but promoting the things that they promote within the Methodist church just shows how far they've come from where they started in the 1750s with John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. So when we get together next week, we'll talk about some of the Methodist doctrines and, um, and look at how they differ. Uh, what's different about the Methodists? If I were to ask you, what do the Methodists believe, could you tell me? Most people probably don't know, you know, but don't go to the Methodist church. Why not? Right? Same thing with the Lutherans. Same thing with the Presbyterians. And that's why, that's why I think it's important that we go through these things and talk about them and, and look at where they differ and look at where they differ from the Word of God. Because if it's just our opinion, then it doesn't matter. But if it differs on, the, on, on what the Bible says then it matters. And that's where these doctrinal differences are going to come into play. But we'll talk about that when we get together next week. All right? Let's pray. And we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Give me thank you so much for how good you are to us. I thank you for the truth of the Word of God and the simplicity of the gospel. And God, I pray that you'd raise up more people that would be able to go out and spread that message. I pray that you'd help us to be able to understand it to the point where uh, we'll have no problem sharing it with people. And no problem standing up for what we believe and, and, and being able to speak why we believe the things that we believe and how they differ from some of these other denominations, some of these other cults, some of the other wolves in sheep's clothing as we've been talking about. But God, I pray that you'd help us as, as we uh, live here in this world, not to be of it, but that we do the best that we can to be Christians that would be uh, set apart for your, your cause and that we'd be a lighthouse so we can reach more people with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do pray for the people that are gone tonight, God. I thank you for the families that you brought here. I pray that you keep them safe and uh, that you'd bring us all back together here on Sunday. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.